It is great to see you here. Glad you're gathered here. Glad for those gathered online. Um, we continue to enjoy growing in our gathering, regathering again, and that is just fantastic. Um, today is Faith Promise Sunday. Now, if you received one of these cards when you came in, could you just take that out if you received one of these cards? And if you didn't, and if you put your hand up, my guess is an usher will bring you one of these cards. So if you did not get a card, put a hand up, and you're going to get a card right now. They're just going to bring them to you, and um, we'll get a card to you. Um, and then um, one of you guys can um, bring a card up to the balcony. Um, our, we have card. Uh, a couple of people up there put their hands up. So if someone can go to the balcony and bring a card, that would be great. All right. So this is our this is our faith promise pledge card for this year. We'll be receiving pledges till the end of April. We do it for a month. Over here, Scott, Hal's wanting one up there, and a couple of people in the balcony want one. This is our commitment to uh, fund missions through our church, local and global. We would invite you to. Uh, um, take this card if you know what God wants you to do today in pledging towards Faith Promise to help support world missions. You can take that card and you can put it in the basket as you're going. Um, for those of you who are online, we're going to be pledging for the next month. If you wanted to send us your pledge online, you can send that to office at community-chapel.org or you can request a card from our office and we'll get one to you. Um, but I'm just going to invite you not to do anything with this card but just to hold it, to pray over it, as our speaker is speaking, and then um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. At the conclusion of the service, as Julie said, um, our speaker, Brandon Sipes, is going to be staying in the sanctuary, and we're going to have a Q&A. We understand people have to leave after the service, but we're going to take about a 10-minute break, come back to the sanctuary, and we're going to then have a Q&A with him afterwards. And we do have some waters. We'll have some waters and some, some uh, energy bars if you want to grab one and, and if you're going to be sticking around. And just have a brief time of Q&A with him before we finish up the day. But um, we want to invite you to do that as well if you would like to do that. Well, it's great to have Brandon and Missy Sipes with us and their two children, DeAsia and Gabe. Uh, they come to us from Springfield, Ohio. Um, where uh, Missy is a children's pastor of 18 years there. Am I right? Did I get that right? And so she's seen it all and done it all and all that kind of stuff. It was so interesting. We came in here and, you know, the Shetler kids, like we normally are, we're, they're running around a little bit. And I, next thing you know, we, Missy's down here with Jonas hanging out on the stairs, laying down on the floor with him. So that was kind of great to see that. And it's just been great to meet their children. Brandon Sibes has a very unique role in the kingdom work in church. He is the advisor to Nazarene Compassionate Ministries for disaster response and refugee response in the world. And um, I imagine if we really sat Brandon down and said, what have you seen? It would be hard to hear some of the things he's seen. I told Brandon we're bringing him in this year. We were supposed to have Brandon and Missy come here two years ago. And they couldn't. So they're here now, and we brought them in for today, but I'm going to bring them back in a year to do a whole weekend with them. And we're going to just really pour it on with them then. But this is also a family trip for them. All of their expenses to be with us have been covered. They're, they're taken care of in terms of their hotel and their air flight and all those kind of things. We actually took care of those two years ago. And... Um, but, you know, this is a little family trip they're trying to take. Brandon, did you just come back from Columbia? He was in Columbia. 
just back. He's back and forth, back and forth. So this is what I'm going to invite you to do. And here's the beautiful thing. Just do what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. When you leave here today, any cash that we have in our offering today, we're just going to give that to the Sipes family for them to go and have some fun while they're in New England. This is their first time in New Hampshire, by the way. And so um, if you want to just do what the Lord would have you to do, then drop that in the basket as we go. And then we're going to We'll send them out to dinner on us for one of their nights when they, they leave tomorrow morning to do some Boston stuff and all that. But uh, Brandon's going to come, and he's going to share with us on our Faith Promise Sunday. But would you welcome both Brandon and the Sipes family to Nashua, New Hampshire? Well, good morning. Am I on here and everything? Is this working? Yes? Okay. Good morning. Um, yeah, that's very kind and, and unnecessary, but Gabe will uh, surely collect it on his way out. Um, yeah, so my wife, Missy, and, and DeAsia and Gabe, they don't often get to come with me on trips like this, so I'm grateful to have them. Uh, travel has been much lighter the last couple of years, and so this year it's sort of finally ramping up again. So um, Columbia last week and a trip to Kansas City in February and I'll be going to Kenya in May and in between now and then probably to Eastern Europe. So it's, uh, so it's nice um, to have them with us. Um, I have all these notes and things that I, I wrote down uh, to prepare to say to all of you. And then pastors Jeff and, and Bob prayed for me in the office and I really feel led to go a whole other direction. I'm just gonna throw all this out um, and just go off the cuff. No, I'm not, I just, I wanted to see you panic a little. There. <laughs> There is nothing more dangerous than a guest speaker who says they're just going to go by the Spirit and say what they want. Um, so no, I'll stick to the, I'll stick to the notes. Um, yeah, so I work for Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, and I work, uh, the, the easiest way to say it is I work with a lot of people in crisis. Um, sometimes that means traveling you know, after a tornado has landed somewhere or an earthquake, and sometimes it means um, going into areas where there's a lot of conflict and displaced people. And so what I wanted to talk uh, mostly about today is people that have been displaced uh, in the way that our church is serving people around the world, the way that your church is serving people around the world um, that have been displaced. And I want to use that as a framework to talk about what God requires of us, what he asks of us for those who are, in my mind, some of the most vulnerable people on earth, um, those who come out of a, a conflict or come... Um, out of very bad economic situations, circumstances, and are forced to leave the place they belong and go somewhere that's brand new and unfamiliar and sometimes dangerous for them. Um, so I hope that's okay that we talk about it this morning. Um, I'm going to give a little information, and I'm going to preach a little, and I'm going to tell a lot of stories. I like telling stories, so I hope that's okay that I give you some stories about what our church and what our missionaries around the world are doing uh, to support these groups. Um, displaced people is a big category term, and it, it means everybody from refugees who are forced from their country to go into another country. It can be people who are scattered in their own countries, like we see in Ukraine and Syria and across the continent of Africa. Um, it can be economic migrants who live in such a condition and have so little hope for their future that they feel forced to go to another country. Um, and as I was preparing this and thinking through it, I even started to think that um, Kids who are in foster care are displaced people. Um, our two children were adopted from the foster care system in Springfield and have been with us since they were very little. But it only kind of just hit me this time as I started thinking about um, 
they are displaced too. They have been forced from a place where they felt like they belong and are now somewhere else. Um, so we have all these categories about people who are forced to leave, and I want to I talk about that a little bit and then tell you what does God require us for those groups. Um, it's interesting, when I walked in here yesterday with, with Pastor Jeff, I, I commented on the, the building and this sanctuary, and it's, it's a really beautiful sanctuary. Um, but for me, it's, a, it's just a space. You know, I've never been here before. Um, I haven't attended a wedding in here. My kids weren't baptized in here. So there hasn't been all this meaning, you know, imbued in this room. But I guarantee many of you have had many of those experiences in here. Do you do baptisms in here? Yeah? So how many of you have attended a baptism in this space, right? Or a wedding, right? A funeral. Um, you've prayed at this altar. You've seen someone come to Christ. All of those experiences, they, they imbue meaning into this space. And so it becomes a place of meaning. And one thing we need to recognize about people who have been displaced, whatever category they're in, they have been forced away from a place where there is deep meaning. They have lost this sense of belonging in that place because they, they no longer have access to it. You know, we live in a, a neighborhood in Springfield that often reminded me and reminds me of sort of like the, the 1950s Norman Rockwell, you know, view of, of neighborhoods, right? I have pictures in the summer of our driveway filled with like 40 bicycles of all of the kids in our neighborhood. Um, and you know, they're, you know, our kids are getting older, you know, almost 15 and 12, and some of the other kids are getting older, but it wasn't that long ago that you'd have you know, 25 kids in our house like running in the front door and out the back door, and you know, there's probably, I don't know, 30 kids around their age within a couple of hundred yards. We know all our neighbors, and there's an, an, an inordinate number of pastors in the neighborhood somehow. Um, but it's this like beautiful neighborhood, and I, I wonder sometimes like what what is what would it be like if we had to leave, you know what would we lose? Um, you know the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were often in exile or forced to move from one place to another, you know, wandering in the desert for forty years, and they created ways to to keep meaning alive with them. And so that's where we get this tabernacle experience, right? It was this place of worship that was mobile because they wanted to keep that meaning with them. Not just a space, but a place that had memory and um, celebrations and, and grief all in one place, a place where they could come and worship and feel like they were still the people of God even as they were expelled from one place to another. And so one thing we need to recognize about displaced people is they're, they're often not carrying a tabernacle with them. They've often been uh, ejected and launched from this, these places where there was significant meaning. And for many of them, they don't know if they'll ever be able to return to that place. And so if you can imagine the pain of that, having to leave and not knowing when you could return. They also develop new identities as they go. You know, they're, they're going into a new country. They're, they're often learning a new language. They, they're not known for who they were before. You know, we were talking earlier about being in a place, and all of a sudden, I wasn't a pastor. I wasn't a leader. I wasn't even a father. I was, I was just a son in that moment. And that happens when we travel and we go places, whether of our own design or not. You, you take on new identities sometimes, and you lose identities. You know, you might have been the, the, the store owner at the corner store, but you're not anymore. You might have been the pastor of your community. You're not anymore. So what do we do with that lost sense of identity? You start to create new identities, but it doesn't mean that the grief of who you were goes away, right? So they've lost 
a place. They've lost identity. So how do they, how do they feel like they belong? Where do I belong in all of this? Um, in Cincinnati, which is not too far from where we live, I have a, a pastor friend there. He's a pastor of a vineyard church in Cincinnati. And we had a conversation. This must have been a decade or more ago. And he was telling me one time about a, a man that was coming to his congregation. Every, every Sunday, he was coming to their church services. And this man was an atheist. And he kept asking the guy, you know, I don't understand. Why, why do you keep coming? Like, why do you keep attending church? You're not, you know, you're not kind of exploring what does it look like to follow Jesus. You're not taking communion with us. You're, you, you know, you have good questions, but you don't seem to have any interest in becoming a person of faith. And the man said, you're right, I don't, you know, I'm, you know I, I don't believe that God exists. I, you know, don't want to take communion and make that somehow, you know, different for all of you. And so the pastor again pressed him and said, well, then why do you keep coming? And the man said, because I think belonging is more important than believing. And I've, I've never forgotten it. I feel like for a long time, um, the the evangelical church in particular, we, we overemphasize the believing piece of it, right? We said, if you believe this or if you pray this prayer, like that's, that's it, that's the core of it. And while that's not untrue, we've tended to forget about the fact that if people don't feel a sense of belonging, like this is a space that's available to them and that God is, is asking and inviting them, come belong, belong to the people of God, I think we're, we're missing it, we're missing something. And so for all of these people who have been forced from one place to another, most of the time what they want to know is, where can I belong? Where do I belong? And it's the task of the people of God to ensure them, you belong with us, and we'll take care of you. No matter what that looks like, no matter what it means for your faith life or who you are, you, you belong with us. We belong with you, because that's what God asks of us. So the scripture that I want to use this morning is from 1 John. It's, it's one of my favorite New Testament scriptures. It's 1 John 4, um, 17 through 21. I'm going to read it from the NIV. I use um, sometimes the message here, but I'm going to read it from the NIV this morning. It says, This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So I want to take the, this is the, the here are the preaching points. As a, as a guest speaker, I get to do three. If I was an evangelist, I would do seven, but I'm just doing three. So the three are, we love God because God loves us. Love overcomes fear and judgment. And love goes to the margins. And I'm going to explain those three. Um, we love because God loves us. You know, I think it's a really almost unfair expectation that we are expected to show others the love that God shows us, right? Is this even realistic? That the amount of grace and love that God has shown us that we could show other people that it's almost as if 
the very nature and character of God is overwhelming, extravagant love. You know, it's almost like that's the truth, right? Because <laughs> it is. <laughs> and yet we're supposed to emulate this somehow. Uh, Missy will tell you, uh, and I will not say names, probably because this is being streamed and my kids will repeat it. There are several people in my church who I work really hard at to fulfill this command. <laughs> I think that that's true, right? Um, but I also recognize that it's a real command and there's no way, way to sidestep it. You know, I used to, and, and maybe you, you hear this a lot, I, I do still hear it a lot, um, that phrase, uh, I love them but I don't have to like them. I don't know that that's true or possible, to be honest. I know it's a really good thing to say because it gets you off the hook, and I have said it. I will probably say it again. Um, but you know, when God is not talking about some thin love, like I like, uh, you know, we talked about college basketball. You know, I like, I love college basketball, or I love my dog, or even I love my neighborhood. You know, I mentioned this, this wonderful place we live in. It's not the love that God is talking about. We're talking about something much more significant and more difficult and deeper. And that's the love that kind of reminds me of how I feel about my family. So could I imagine sitting across the dinner table from any one of them and saying, you know, I love you, but I don't like you very much. So I don't really know what to do with that phrase anymore. You know, once you, once you sort of think about something like that, then you have, you're forced to wrestle with it, which I hate. I wish I could just, you know, dismiss it. Um, but I don't know that God is calling us to a love where we still don't like the people. Because that means we still have inner work to do. We have transformational work to do. We have to recognize that there's something going on there. So I, I want to, um, there's a couple pictures I'd like to show you here. This first one, um, this is a family camp um, in Tijuana on the Mexico side of the Tijuana-San Diego border. Um, this picture was taken in 2018, I think. And it was when we had all the caravans, that's the phrase I kept using, the caravans coming up through Mexico and into, um, into the US. And I don't know if you remember a lot of the language that was being used at that time about, about these migrants and about why they might be coming. Um, but a lot of it was very, honestly, dehumanizing, hateful language. Like, there isn't any other way to say it. So we had Nazarenes both in, on the U.S. side of the border and the Mexico side of the border who were going to places like this and trying to figure out how do we serve groups like this? How do we serve people who are incredibly desperate and who are sleeping in concrete floors and tents and being given aid by different aid agencies because they can't go home? Either there's gang violence or civil war, political conflict, or such levels of poverty that there's simply no other option. And yet some of the language that we used to describe these folks was pretty negative. And I don't think that that language comes from scripture. Um, I think it comes from a place of fear and judgment, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but it comes when our identity and our posture toward groups like this isn't completely formed by our Christian life and the God who loves us with extravagant love, but rather on other things. Maybe that's our political posture, our identity. Often it, often it is. And so I would ask us, as we see groups like this, what is it that made us show resistance to that? 
What identity is being, being shown there when we are reluctant to serve these groups? And which one of our identities should take priority? Is it our Christian identity? Is it our political identity? Is it our identity as a father, as a son? Um, there isn't a picture I showed up here, but um, there was a story during that same time of someone trying to cross uh, the river into, into Texas, and uh, he had a very young daughter with him, a two-year-old daughter, and uh, he tried to swim across the river, and, and they both drowned. And there's a picture of his daughter sort of inside his shirt, because he had put her inside his shirt to try to swim across. So there, my identity as a father comes into play, Right? because I can't imagine the grief. So we don't have the luxury of not identifying primarily as Christians and saying, actually, we act out of love, that that's what we do. Um, the next picture is a pastor who also lives in Tijuana, and he is doing exactly that. His name is Juan Jose Moreno. And that's a migrant that he's with. Um, with a, I have no idea what that shirt means. Um, but... Uh, He's a, he's a faithful Nazarene pastor who pastors a church in Tijuana and serves all of these groups as they come through. The center, the building that they're standing next to there was one that was under construction to house families who were coming in so that they wouldn't have to sleep on the floor of old gyms. And so I just continue to ask us, if a God who loves us so extravagantly, who so freely gives that love without any sense of judgment about who we are, aren't we required to do the same without any sense of judgment for them? And that's what I'd like to talk about now is, is fear and judgment. Um, this is one of those, I, I did a video with a pastor friend of mine a few weeks ago about Ukraine, and um, I congratulated myself at the end because I avoided jumping on about 20 soapboxes. So like I, um, I can jump on <laughs> any issue, not any issue, but issues that are passionate to me, and I'll just go on and on and on. Gabe asked me this morning, did you write, your, did you write all this out? And I said, yeah, because otherwise I'm going to go on you know, 20 million rabbit trails and talk about things, but fear is one that I probably could talk about for a long time. Um, I think our call to act justly and love our neighbors deeply is, is often too hampered by fear and judgment. Um, often those come from uh, political concerns that we have um, rather than our allegiance uh, and, and uh, faithfulness to what God calls us to do. And I, I want to say a couple things really clearly. God does not judge why people are in their vulnerable condition. He does not judge, for example, why, why people have been displaced. He doesn't diminish their humanity by assuming the worst about them and saying, well, they are in that situation because they're lazy, or they are only coming here because they want to take our jobs, or they're only fleeing. because None of that happens with God. It, we do it. I do it, right? I do, I do it for, the, you know, for, for the, the people I'm supposed to love, you know, the enemies that I'm supposed to love. I, I make judgments too, so I don't, I don't wash my hands of that. But in the midst of, of our judgments, even while we are judging, we're still called to serve. In the midst of all the right political answers about what's happening at our borders, we're still called to act morally. We're still called to respond to God's command that we love other people. And so you're allowed to have this contradiction where there may be this other sort of part of you that's reluctant for some reason, and maybe you're struggling with that, and you don't know what to do with it, and yet God still calls you to go and love people 
You can do both, even though it creates tension. You can do both. But we have let so much um, fear of other groups come into us that we, we sometimes can't even act rationally. That's what fear does, by the way. It, it literally hijacks your brain in a way that you don't think logically and rationally about things. There's a story, um, I told you I would tell a lot of stories. I wasn't planning on telling this one. Um, my son Gabe, uh, we were at home one day and the short version of the story is there was a dog loose in the neighborhood and it started attacking one of our neighbor kids. So I ran out, Missy got home at the same time, pulled up in the Jeep. So we're all running over there. Missy's getting the other family's kids inside and this dog is running around trying to bite these kids. And around that time, Gabe comes out our front door and yells across the street, Dad, what are you doing? The dog hears him and tears right back across the street, right? And so I'm running. I pick up Gabe right before the dog gets to him. The dog jumps up, bites his leg. I'm kicking the dog over and over and over again. And I, this little teenage girl um, who was annoying me, uh, <laughs> is just sort of following around the dog, and, I, and I'm, I'm yelling at this point, you need to get this dog or I'm going to kill it. So finally she gets the dog, takes it back home. I call the police. The police come out. They're doing all their, you know, information or whatever. You know, I'm worried that Gabe's, like, traumatized for life. And the police officer asks me for his full name and birth date. And I couldn't remember it. I couldn't remember his middle name. I couldn't remember his birth date. I had so much adrenaline from the fear that he'd been hurt. Like, I couldn't think clearly. And again, I was so concerned he was traumatized. And in the middle of it, he asked the police officer, can I play with your taser? <laughs> so, like, he was fine. But I, like, I could, I, you know, luckily Missy was there. She was answering all the questions. But I had gotten so worked up that I couldn't, that's what fear does to us. It hijacks our ability to think clearly, and most importantly, it creates a scenario in us that because we are afraid, we create distance. We push people away, we put up barriers, we put up walls, and we get, we get very afraid. Um, the next picture here is of a guy named Graham. Um, Graham. Uh, Graham is a guy that I met because he's not, he's not a Christian, he's not a Nazarene, he's not a Christian, um, but he was taking banjo lessons from one of our Nazarenes in the United Kingdom. And this guy he was taking lessons from went to the border in Croatia when the Syrian refugee crisis was coming and was serving there with our missionaries, um, the Sunbergs and others there in Central Europe serving Syrian refugees, Syrian, Afghani, Iraqi, Iranian refugees, all these groups coming through. And I remember talking to Graham about his experience there. Again, non-Christian guy. And he was saying, you know, I really experienced when I got here that I would have so much pity for people. You know, I would feel so bad for them, and they're in such a bad shape and such a bad condition, and I would just feel awful for them and feel so sad and, and want to do something. And he said, but you know what? Within 24 hours of being here, that sense of pity changed to admiration. You know, I met people, I met a family in that town with Graham who had buried two of their infant children already because they had been on the road so long and been in such hard conditions that two infants had died along the way. They had pictures of their graves in Turkey. They didn't even get to bury their children in their own country. 
And so, of course, you go and you have a sense of pity, right? And he's saying, no, no, no. I saw all these people and how strong they were, and it was, it was only admiration. So this non-Christian guy, because he was learning banjo, ends up in Croatia with no fear and starts serving refugees along the way. And he served someone like this girl. I don't know her name. Um, in in this, this town is called Slavonsky Broad, Croatia. And in this town, the trains would pull in. All of the refugees would get off. They would go through a health check. And then they would go through a much bigger tent where they were given like backpacks of, of kids' school supplies and educational stuff or food. Or they could get coats or shoes, jet, you know, all that sort of. You could get everything you needed. But they, were, they got off the train. They went through this. And they got right back on the train again. It was like less than an hour for them to do everything. And the authorities were kind of pushing them through the whole time. And so our missionaries there were serving in this tent, you know, giving, handing out these items to these, these refugees. And this little girl was, uh, spoke a little English. And so she was the one. I mean, many people there were speaking Arabic, too. And so the, there was plenty of ability to communicate. But because she spoke English, she was talking to our team members, Graham, actually. And she had like seven people of her family with her. And she's the whole time they're in this tent while they're trying to be shoved through. Um, she's running around getting things for people in her family. You know, her grandparent, her mother, her sister, all these. She's going through and getting all this stuff, making sure they have a coat, they have shoes. This could, and it was only at the very end when the officers were like, okay, it's time for you to go, that we realized she didn't have shoes. It's February, by the way, in Croatia. So it's like it is now. She didn't have any shoes. And so we tried to start you know, looking for something for her real quick, but the you know, authorities were pushing her out. Um, she spent the whole time <laughs> meeting other people's needs, the whole time, showing love that comes from somewhere. Right? Graham didn't let it go, and after they left, he's still looking around for a pair of shoes for her, and he grabbed two pairs he thought might fit and ran out and gave them to her. And then this photo. I'm a little amazed sometimes that we can hear stories of people who are non-Christians who express love better than we do. I'm not amazed because people aren't people. I think there are incredible people everywhere, and, and often some of the best people that I have known in my entire life are non-Christian. I don't say that to diminish other people. I say that to point to ourselves and say, but shouldn't we have the best example? And sometimes we don't. So I hear stories like this about what our groups are doing along the border. And I'm telling you, with the, the Sunbergs and the other missionaries that were there in this place, they told me story after story of, uh, you know, we weren't there evangelizing. It wasn't like, here's some shoes, and oh, also, do you know Jesus? We are just meeting needs. Right? But almost inevitably, it would come up and they would say, oh, we already knew you were Christians. You didn't need to say anything. We already knew. That kind of overflowing grace and love for other people is something we ought to be showing all around and in every moment of every day. And when we fail at it, we fail at it. But we have to acknowledge that we're failing at something God is asking us to do. And yes, the bar is really high. But if we're going to pray your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, the bar is going to be really high. So I always talk about it and like it's a, it's a great, um, what a great opportunity we have to come alongside the work of the kingdom, but it's such a terrifying responsibility. 
We can be both grateful and a little worried about how well we're doing. Uh, the last couple photos I want to share here. Um, these are some Ukrainian refugees. Um, you know, we've, it sounds like you have been praying for Ukraine, for Russia, um, for our folks in Eastern Europe, and please continue to do that. Um, you know, the situation there is extreme. The, the number of refugees has more than doubled in the last decade. In 2011, there were 45 million displaced people around the world, and right now it's getting close to 90 just in the last 10 years. Um, Ukraine has added uh, over 3 million people to that number in the last month. So it's a, it's a very serious situation, um, so much so that, that Nazarene Passionate Ministries has been raising money. We've been working with partners, sending items in. Our, our pastors throughout Ukraine have been serving in their churches as bomb shelters. Uh, I was in Odessa Ukraine, and Kiev, uh, Ukraine years ago, and so many of those pastors I have spent time with and stayed in their homes. Um, the ones in Odessa, interestingly, the pastor of the Odessa Ukraine church is a Syrian um, who lived in Syria 20 years ago and moved here and married his Ukrainian wife. Um, pastors in Ukraine spent weeks in the basement um, different basements, apartments. Some of them have escaped and some of them are continuing to shelter people. So you have those that are staying in Ukraine who are in besieged cities. You have those that are fleeing Ukraine and all of them deserve our compassion. All of them deserve a place where they know they belong because we have told them this, this place of God, this, everyone belongs here. Everyone. Even if you don't believe the right things yet, Belonging comes first. You belong in this space. We'll get to the believing stuff. We'll get to the behaving stuff. But you, you belong. You belong here. Some of our missionaries are doing, um, in this next photo, uh, this is uh, Crystal Gibbons, who is, uh, she and her husband Chad are missionaries in Ukraine. Um, they left very early on. And this picture was taken at our regional um, uh, center, like the regional um, office, where they are packaging up supplies that are going to Poland. And so they're, they're doing this work at our regional center, helping organize things. They're sending it to another set of missionaries, the Terrence, who live in Poznan, Poland. And one of the really interesting things is, I've mentioned the Sunbergs a couple times. They are uh, friends of ours, and I've known them for many years. And they were living in Budapest, Hungary, up until about a year and a half ago. And then they really felt like God was calling them to Poland for some reason. <laughs> and they moved up to Poland in the last nine months or something. And now they are at the epicenter of another refugee crisis in Eastern Europe. So it's, it's so interesting to me to, to see these stories of our missionaries being faithful to what God has called them to do and not asking any questions about who are the right people to serve and how do we do it? They just act. They just respond. We try to support them as much as we can through NCM and you know, we're helping them organize things and sending in staff. They're hiring people. They're doing all these things basically just to show you belong. One of the ministries that they're doing is in a town called Przemysl, which is right in the Poland-Ukraine border. Um, as all of these trains and, and cars are coming in from Ukraine, there are all these families getting off. And at, whether you knew this or not, Ukraine is not letting the men leave. 
they're, they're being required to stay essentially and, and fight if they can, or at least at a minimum stay. They're not, it's not conscription, they're not being forced into the military, but they're not being allowed to leave for the most part. And so almost everybody that's coming across these borders is women and children or elderly. You know, groups that are very vulnerable on their own. And our missionaries, our folks in those areas are telling us from, from day one, we see the traffickers. We see the men waiting for the children on their own or for the women who seem very desperate. They're waiting. And that area of the world is very high in trafficking anyway. And so now it's a perfect opportunity. And it's a perfect opportunity for us to step in and say, one, don't talk to that guy, right? Come with us. And so in that space, in Shemeshil, there we have a, what's called a child safe space. And we invite families in so that they can sit and rest and charge their phones and contact loved ones and get a meal before they go on to their next destination. And it provides literally sanctuary. The, the, that, that old uh, task of the church that you can go to the church when you need safety and sanctuary, that's what they're providing there, what our missionaries are doing, what the Church of the Nazarene is doing in that area. So I, as, I, as I close here, I, I wanted to ask you a question or a series of questions about, okay, so we heard about Ukraine, we heard about the U.S.-Mexico border, we heard about Croatia and Syrian refugees. You know, those are kind of really far-flung places, right? But, but even Pastor Jeff alluded already this morning, but what about here? You know, I mentioned our, our kids in foster care and... Um, what are those agencies here in Nashua that are serving the most vulnerable people? Those who don't feel like they belong. You know, when I was young, we moved, I don't know how many times, place to place to place to place, right? My family was very, uh, we, we did not have a lot. And so often it was you lived in a place until you couldn't pay the bill anymore, right? And then you moved to another place until you couldn't pay the bill. There are so many families here like that. Place to place to place. They don't, ever, they don't ever develop the meaning and memory, right? Because they're just forced from one area to another. What are those groups here in Nashua that you know are out there and operating that are serving the most vulnerable? Who in your community has been excluded from access, maybe even to this space? How have we opened up and welcomed those who need a sense of belonging in this place, in this space? If we haven't thought about those questions very much, we need to. God is calling us not just to the margins of our world, but to the margins of our neighborhoods. You know, it's, it's powerful to sing. You know, uh, I, I'm forgetting the lyrics now all of a sudden. Lord, lead me um, where my trust is without borders. Right? It's powerful to sing that. But if you're going to sing that, God's going to do it. So... So don't sing it if you don't have any intention of following up because God's going to be like, okay, well, I'll, I'll take you there. I'll show you exactly what that looks like because then we have to do it. So if we can affirm that statement, it means we can affirm it here too. Um, the last picture you should recognize. Is there one more? Maybe not. Okay. Um, I, I, I have in my mind this kind of overhead shot of, of Nashua. Right? And you all probably recognize that, right? If you saw like a picture of your city. 
So what does it look like to go to the margins in this city to find those who are most excluded, most vulnerable? What does it look like for this place to be known, to have a witness that I go there when I feel like I don't belong? I go there when I don't have another place to go. That should be the witness of our church in every area. And when Syrian refugees walk by our people that hand them a pair of shoes and they say, we already knew you were Christian, that's the message that should happen here too. We already knew you were Christian. Yeah, you've got the sign and you've got all the stuff in your sanctuary, but we would have known it anyway. Is that our witness? Do they know that about us clearly? Um, so I'd like to, I think there's a video, right? Yes. Um, this is a, a prayer video for displaced people. Dear God, we pray. For those who are far from home or have no home anymore, may they find a home in you and in your church. Lord, we lift up those who are displaced by violence and conflict in this broken world those displaced by greed, those persecuted and pushed to the margins by violence, oppression, and a fight that isn't theirs, where they have found a clenched fist and a closed door, may they find an open hand and a loving welcome in us. Help us to see those who have fallen through the cracks and help us to reflect your love. Give us the courage to advocate, to embrace, to love as you love, without boundaries or fear. Our Lord and our God, we pray. For those who have been displaced, may they find refuge in you and in your church. May it be so. Amen. Thank you, Brandon, for that message. Mm. Your Faith Promise card has this little line and a little piece on it, so I'm pulling this off as my reminder of what we're going to give. But then I have this rest left over that I'm going to put in the basket in the back. You don't have to do that today. If you prayerfully haven't considered it, don't do it today but do it over the course of the next month. One of the reasons I love the fact that Brandon's here is he represents Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. And there's Nazarene Compassionate Ministries and there's Nazarene World Mission. It's not either or, it's both and. And what happens is, is that Nazarene Compassionate Ministries comes alongside of missionaries like the Sumbergs and the others, and the Gibbons and others, comes alongside them, and they move in rhythm together to try to change the world. I think that's one of the most genius things about Nazarene missions, both and. So when we pledge the faith promise, what we're doing is we're seeking to support locally and globally how we're doing that, supporting people like the Gibbons, as well as supporting what we're seeking to do locally, some of the things we're doing at Penachuk School, where we're trying to help them with food insecurity in these days, and other things we're doing, um, some of those partnerships we've had. So as you pledge, remember that, that we're doing it in partnership. We also 
regularly give in different ways to Nazarene Compassion Ministries. And so we want to also do that in addition. But I appreciate the view of the world that we receive today that strips away all of those things that I have the preference for, the things that um, are the soapbox issues or my own comfort areas, and cause me to go, okay, that's what God is calling us to. Strips away political affiliations, strips away where I came from, where he came from, where you came from, backgrounds. Strips away um, ethnic difference, strips away language difference, just strips all of those things away that we erect, that prevent me, that I erect, that prevent me from seeing what God wants to do. So here's the, here's the charge. What is it that God is speaking to you about today? What is God saying to you today? What is he saying to me? My journal is now filled with questions. Thank you very much for make, you know, upsetting my heart some more. And, you know, and so I'm going to um, ponder those things. But thank you um, for what you shared. Our worship team is going to come. And um, we're just going to sing to our great God who actually, what does God see when he sees all this? That's the question. That's the question. What does God see when he sees all this? May God give me his eyes, but to have God's eyes, I must first see him and his goodness and his greatness and his love for us and through us. Why don't you stand with me and let's just worship the Lord together.